Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovation in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to another episode of Need to Know. I'm your host, John Molesky. Well, the U.S.-Mexico border is often in the news for what some might call all the wrong reasons, usually tied to border security concerns. And while security is certainly a legitimate concern, we sometimes focus on it to the detriment of the bigger picture, ignoring the vital economic interests that unite the United States and Mexico on a daily basis. Each year for the past nine and counting, the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute has hosted the Building a Competitive U.S.-Mexico Border Conference. The most recent occurred a short time ago, and joining us to discuss the topics addressed is one of the driving forces behind the conference and the Wilson Center's ongoing work on the border. He is the director of the Mexico Institute, Andrew Rudman. Andrew, welcome back to Need to Know. Hi, John. Great to be back. Great to have you. So, Andrew, let's begin with the general tenor of the discussions during the conference. Are people generally optimistic about the direction things are taking? I, you know, I, I think your your intro, you, you hit a lot of the key points, John, that the border is, is such a vibrant, essential part of our economy, of, of our two economies. The the 10 border states, the six Mexican and four U.S. combined would be the fourth largest economy in the world. Wow. And, and I think what, as you said, the focus is so much on the border, meaning that literally the line between the two countries and we envision a, a you know, a, a customs inspection booth as being the border. But the border region is, is obviously much more than that. And I think the the purpose of the border conference has really always been to bring the folks from the border to Washington to interact with policymakers about what's working and what's not working from a commercial standpoint and also from the standpoint of people moving back and forth to see family, to see friends, to go shopping, to to see cultural events, etc. So I'm going to uh, use the outline of the panels that you had during the conference and some of the highlights that uh, document you published about highlights to walk through some of the various issues and topics that you've been discussing and ask you for an update. And and I'll start off with post-pandemic recovery. Everything around the globe is in the this, the recovery mode. Have has business returned to usual, or are we still in a bit of a pandemic hangover? You know, I, I business has largely returned to usual, but there have been some changes in in the way people do business. I I think really a lessons learned, incorporating the lessons, and and maybe internalizing some of the fears or the risks. We held a conversation um, in Brownsville earlier this year with Sam Houston State University, and and one of the important points that came out that was repeated in our border conference last month is that things have shifted from just in time, where you know literally a widget that you needed for production crossed the border, and you knew it was going to cross the border at 2 p.m. and be in your warehouse at 3 p.m., and so that's when you were ready to assemble that companies have moved now to just in case where they're storing more widgets on the US side of the border because they aren't as certain that they'll be able to get them across the border. Um, 
when I worked at the Commerce Department uh, in the NAFT office right after 9-11, I remember, you know, we remarked that, wow, just in time really literally means just in time. <laughs> and, and now I think what you're seeing is a bit of a shift from just in time to just in case. And there are additional costs to that. So that's why one of the themes that came up throughout the day, throughout the different panels, was this idea of needing to make sure that the infrastructure works, that we have a modern border, that we find ways to screen cargo and people efficiently, because the, the tension, I think, at the border is always, if you think of it as one extreme is let absolutely nothing in because then mm -hmm. we're 100% safe and we can buy nothing. The other extreme is let everything in and we can get whatever we want as cheaply as possible and we have no security. And it's always a tension between how much security, how much flexibility for business. And I think the goal is to use technology to change that calculus a little bit. About that, Andrew, about the infrastructure. You know, when you, when you cross the border, I drove across the Canadian border last week, way into Canada. It took about 10 minutes. On returning to the United States, it took about 90 minutes in, in line. And a lot of the infrastructure and technology you're talking about is invisible when you're just sitting in your vehicle and waiting. So what are the types of things that we're talking about other than things that would be obvious like more lanes? Well, more, more lanes is, is often the hardest thing to do because a lot of times border crossings are in areas where they're really congested. So there's not, you know, you, you can't just stick another lane. And even if you do add another lane, sometimes there are personnel challenges that CBP doesn't have enough inspectors. So the things technology can do are um, provide information to the border crossing agents from whether it's U.S. or Mexico or Canada and the northern border of what's coming so that you file your paperwork in advance. And if you're a trusted traveler, again, to go back to our example of something crossing, you know, if every day at two o'clock, um, John drives a truck across from the factory in Mexico and they know that that's coming, then um, it doesn't mean they never inspect it, um, but it does mean that, you know, you file paperwork in advance, you're a trusted traveler and they know that you're coming. There are technologies more and more um, non-invasive technology. Um, they have, for example, um, scanners on, on railroad crossings where you can essentially x-ray the, the train while it's still moving and then either divert it or not divert it depending on what you've identified in. So the whole idea is to make sure you can see what's coming without having to stop it at the border. Yeah, we've seen that at airports, right? These advanced x-ray machines that are much less yes. invasive and, ha and work much more quickly. So in addition to investment in infrastructure, what are some of the other things that were talked about as far as the, the governments of each country investing in, taking actions in that could make the border more competitive? Well, in addition to technology, there's, there's better information sharing, which obviously is part of that. You could say is using the technology more efficiently, to identifying opportunities. One of the things we've talked about at this event and in the past is this idea of sort of planning for um, anticipating non-trade interruptions to trade. So that could be um, additional inspections imposed by a state government. It could be a natural disaster that closes a bridge or a lane or something like that. And I think governments obviously have a big part in that in coming up with protocols. What will we do if a certain crossing becomes inoperable? How do we notify people in advance of what's happening and how do we take into account one thing that comes up often is concerns about if there is a glitch 
um, in the ability to transmit information electronically, can paper hard copies be accepted at border crossings? And there is, to some extent, some variation in different posts of, of what you can do and when, and that obviously creates a lot of confusion. One of the things that I read with interest in the uh, report that you did on the conference was this notion that uh, some federal laws make it difficult to do things that if they had been managed on the local level could uh, operate more efficiently. Could you fill us in on, on some of that? What are the specific things that might work better if they're managed within a border community versus from on high? So where where that came up most had to do with uh, very much with the pandemic and with the ability to share COVID vaccines. The, hmm. the COVID vaccines belonged to the federal government and the federal government had not authorized their export. And it turned out, as, as we've discussed, the, the number of people going back and forth across the border um, is up to a million and a half people a day. And so the idea that you would vaccinate people on one side of the border and think you were safe didn't make sense. And so what they did in San Diego and later in some crossings in Texas is bring people, work out with the local um, border uh, customs and border protection uh, mechanisms where people could cross into the U.S. but never go through, never be processed, never legally, formally enter, but get their vaccine on the U.S. side of the border because uh, San Diego, for example, had extra vaccines and it was in their interest to vaccinate people in Tijuana who would be crossing the border. So that's that was that's probably the best example of where a little bit more flexibility and if you will trust that the federal government know figures the people in San Diego know who they have to vaccinate. And I know that uh, workforce development, labor training, education are on the agenda. How do they relate to what we're talking about? Are we talking about training border guards, educating people who would actually work and live on the border? What is that all about? I, I think that's really not so much educating border border patrol agents as much as it is in helping people capitalize on the opportunities that, that cross-border trade offers. Uh, as we talk, we've, we've talked on, on other podcasts about nearshoring and the idea of bringing mm -hmm. investment back to North America. And so part of that is making sure that uh, that a, a company that wants to invest in a new factory can find the engineers that it might need. Uh, another part of that, which does apply to the border, would be possible reforms and changes to the way people are allowed to cross the border and um, the way people can come into the United States to do work, for example, a maintenance person who needs to come service a mainframe, uh, you know, an, a Mexican engineer who the company wants to send to the U.S., making sure that those sorts of things can happen more quickly. And uh, I want to ask you a final question that's future oriented, future looking, uh, and that's about where innovation in general, AI in particular, can factor into the equation of creating a more competitive border. Uh, well, AI definitely, John, can be used, for example, in some of that screening, some of that predictive mm -hmm. capacity of knowing, you know, what are the chances? Again, John crosses the border every every day at two o'clock with the same truck. The chances, it doesn't mean nothing would ever happen, but, you know, you're probably a good risk and maybe you should be ignored while there, you know, Andrew, who's never crossed the border before, maybe I'm more of a, a threat. So the more they can use that information to identify um, patterns that that would be one example. Uh, another uh, which came up in the conversation is the use of AI to help classify products because of course every product has a code and that determines 
whether a tariff applies or what kind of a tariff. And the more you can automate that, the more quickly, again, you can move you can move goods across the border. Well, Andrew, as always, thank you. As informative as our discussion has been, I just want to let our listeners and viewers know that they can indulge in the entire conference as well because it's available online if you come to wilsoncenter.org and click the tab for the Mexico Institute and then check the events. You will find it in all its glory, the ninth annual conference. And also there are some written summaries as well for those of you who are inclined to favor text over the visuals. Andrew, thanks again. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. So that's uh, all we have for this edition of Need to Know. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again next time. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. 